If you have your Bibles, would you turn to John 21? Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to, uh, just by way of reminder of where we've been over the last weeks, we are in a series called Resurrection Stories. We are looking at the appearances of Christ after after the resurrection, before his ascension in Acts chapter 1. And so we're just looking at all of those revelations of Jesus uh, being alive again after the cross. And a, a theme that, that honestly wasn't planned for this series, but has kind of come out of us talking and sharing about these stories is a verse from the 23rd Psalm. Surely... Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. As, as Christians, we talk a lot about following Jesus or following God, but what we're seeing in this series is that Jesus is following and pursuing us, and it's really significant to understand that and embrace that. We saw it on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving home from Jerusalem, going to their hometown in Emmaus. They had hoped, but now they didn't have any hope. Their faces were downcast, and Jesus follows them. Uh, Thomas, last week, his doubting. Unless I see the hands and the side of Jesus, I'm not going to believe. And all of his friends, all of the disciples are like, we have seen the Lord. And he's like, I'm not going to believe unless I see a week later not Easter Sunday, but the second Easter Sunday, Jesus pursues Thomas there in his place of doubt. We will see Jesus show up today in our text in a place of professional failure. And so it's just interesting to me that we, we see Jesus again and again and again showing up in these broken places, these hard places, pursuing, following, inviting, bringing his presence, his mercy, his peace to the disciples, uh, regardless of their fears, regardless of their doubts, regardless of their failures. And the message from Jesus, last week we saw this three times in John 20, is this, my peace, my shalom, I give to you. And so if you're in a place of doubting today, you're in a place of failure today, or you're in a place of struggle today, or you're in a place that you're like, I don't know where God is, I'm telling you that he is following you, he is pursuing you, and his grace and mercy wants you to know that you are welcome home with, with him. Um, here is where the series has been over the last weeks and where we're going to pick up today uh, in the Sea of Galilee. So we've post-resurrection appearances the first Sunday and then eight days later, that's John 20, that's where we were last week. John 21 is the seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Um, some context of the Sea of Galilee. It is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It is where the majority of Jesus' ministry was. And it's where the majority of the disciples are from. And we know from Scripture that at least six of the disciples are from the area, the region of Galilee, maybe more. Uh, and so um, perhaps two-thirds of Jesus' ministry happened in the Sea of Galilee area. And so some of the disciples, not all of them, but seven of them are back there. Capernaum is where Peter, James, and John were from, and they were professional fishermen, and they have gone back home now to Galilee, and they are fishing. 
and that's where the story picks up. So the story kind of fast forwards. I don't know how long it took them to walk or ride a donkey 60 miles, but it wasn't just the next day. Some time has passed, and we know from Scripture that it was about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so we saw last week it was day seven. So it's somewhere between day seven and day 40, this narrative, this story that we'll look at today in John chapter 21. And I'm just going to pick the story. Oh, that's me and Jackson, my son, on the Sea of Galilee uh, in 2019. And this scene right there is, uh, I'm going to go back right there. That scene right there is where all this is taking place. Um, it's interesting, if you've never seen the Sea of Galilee, I expected it to be way bigger than it is. It's a large body of water, but it's not so large that you can't, it's not like the Mediterranean Sea, which feels like an ocean. You can't see the other side. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. I mean, it's, it's rounder than Horseshoe. You know, Horseshoe Lake is really long and narrow. Sea of Galilee is more round, but you can easily see from one side over to the other, and Jesus is meeting his disciples in this place after a long, long night of fishing. All right, so let's pick up in John 21. I'm just gonna read a few verses at a time as we work through this this morning. I love this passage, uh, this scene. There is much for us to see and understand from what's happening here. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were there. We know as we're going to begin to unpack the story that one of the two disciples that was there was John, who was writing this, but we don't know who the other disciple was or why John doesn't identify this particular disciple. So two other disciples were there. Verse three, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I got to go fishing on Monday with my friend Steve Ballmer and our dads. And we went to, uh, up to Estes to fish all day long, just on the other side of the dam on Lake Estes right there, there's that little, if you know Estes Park, there's that little go-kart place. We were there all day, and we caught nothing. <laughs> so I resonate a little bit with the story. It wasn't all night, but it was all day. We still had a great time, but we caught nothing. One of the things I want to point out in, this, in these three verses, we see... Uh, the word in this passage, uh, the word appeared or revealed. And so as we work through these verses and you, you see that word appeared or revealed, uh, this is the third time uh, that Jesus is going to reveal himself uh, to his disciples. He's bringing a revelation that he is alive and there is a response to that revelation. And we're gonna see that uh, in this passage as the disciples interact with, with Jesus. Um, they fished all night, they've caught nothing, they're heading back to the shore, and it's interesting to me, I noticed in verse three uh, that, that John makes it, he makes it really clear that they caught nothing. 
And in that place, again, they're professional fishermen. We know like Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is their livelihood. This is what they do well, better than anyone else. And it was a night full of fishing and they caught nothing. And so they're feeling a sense of that failure as their main profession. And that's where Jesus follows them in that place. And that's where the next verses will go in verses four to six. And he called out to them early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, they didn't know it was Jesus. 100 yards or so out, or maybe even longer than that. So you're fishing all night long. You're exhausted, you're tired, there's no fish in the net, you're kind of coming back, you're discouraged, you're frustrated, and you got some homie on the shore, hey, you guys catch anything? You think, you think they were frustrated with the question? Think they were annoyed at the question? Would you be annoyed at the question? Was Jesus messing with them, having some fun with them? I don't know, maybe. All I know is their response in the text is no. Catch anything? No, they answered. Just short, sweet, quick. And then the stranger, we know it's Jesus, we're privy to that in our, and as we're reading through it, but they weren't privy to it. They hadn't recognized that it was the Lord. So they answered no, and Jesus said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. I find it strange that they did what the stranger told them to do. You know what I mean? I think they were maybe annoyed with the question. I don't really understand. I just noticed as I read through it, it's like they didn't recognize it was Jesus. They had failed in their main profession, and this person on the shore, hey, throw the net on the other side, to which I go, do you think that they only fished on one side of the boat the entire night? I mean, when you're fishing in a boat, you're like, I'm not, a, I'm not really a fisherman, so don't judge me for a, my hand motions here. <laughs> but I like to go fishing with fishermen, but I'm not a fisherman. So we're like, we're trying over here, but they weren't really doing this. They're throwing nets out. Like, well, let's try the other side. So don't you think that they were trying the front of the boat, the back of the boat, the side of the boat, left side, right side, all night long? Of course they were. And now there's, there's something happening in the atmosphere that the presence of God is moving and they're not even aware of it and something stirs in them to go, let's try it. And they do it and they catch all these fish. I'm gonna point out three things in these short verses. We've talked about this already. Jesus, he didn't show up at a Bible study or a prayer meeting, he showed up at their profession after their failure. He followed them to this place where they were discouraged, exhausted, frustrated. That, that's where he showed up. He pursued them in that place. Uh, we see it in the road to Emmaus. Faces downcast, Jesus follows them. We saw it in Thomas, doubting, Jesus shows up there. We see it in Galilee, failure in their main profession. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow 
me, you, us, all the days of our life. Significant, it's important. It's a breakthrough, it's a breakthrough. Jesus empowers, secondly, what his word commands. Hey, we're privy that it's the Lord. Again, they're not privy that it's the Lord. Hey, throw the net on the other side. Jesus empowers what his word commands. If Jesus calls you to it, he will see you through it. And we see that in this passage. You are simply never on your own. I don't, I don't care how afraid you are. I don't care how much you're doubting. I don't care how much failure you've had in your life. It will not thwart the grace and the mercy of God and pursuing you and finding you and welcoming you home. And Jesus calls them friends because that's what Jesus calls us, his friends. The Greek word, perhaps I'm reading out of the NIV. If you're reading out of the ESV or maybe the NASB, instead of friends, what is your translation? Does anybody have this translation? Tell me what it says. Children. Children. Which I go, the stranger called them children. Which I go, I don't know about you, but Peter, I mean, he's, Peter's rough around the edges. I'm not sure maybe how he felt about like this stranger calling him, hey boys. I mean, if I just showed up and my friend Nate on the front row wasn't in a good place and I was like, hey little boy. It might not go real well for me. It might not go real well for me, right? And I first read that and I go, man, that seems like he's shaming them, but it's not that way at all. It's actually that Greek word that's translated children, friends, it's a word of endearment. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said this, let the little children come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So he invites them. They still know it's the Lord, but God is about to open their eyes, and this next scene is, I would call it, beautifully childlike. There is a lot of of laughter and play uh, in this uh, next scene, and so I want you to, like, get to that childlike place. I was at a graduation party last night, and children were literally everywhere, I was at a wedding yesterday, and I got to be at a wedding that I wasn't officiating, which was super fun, and I sat literally in the back right corner, which is awesome. And, you know, at weddings before the bride comes down, there's, you know, typically most weddings that I've been to has like a ring bear or like a flower girl. Uh, This wedding, you guys, had more children coming around the corner than I have ever seen. It was like a wave of like 12 and then you think it's done, and then like 10 more came. It was amazing, and they were real loud up front during the ceremony, but it was fantastic. It's just like, and it was so endearing. It was so child, like the party last night, the wedding, joy, it's palpable. So I just, I wanna invite you into that kind of thing as we read these. We gotta get out of our adulting, like serious, And we got to just like 
Let go. Thank you. Let go of our adulting. Because you're about to see some childlike stuff happen right here. And I think you're going to also uh, understand some, like, some stuff that goes on relationally, again, from John and Peter and some of their like, disciple rivalry fun. So here we go. 7 to 11. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is speaking about himself. He always describes himself that way. I am the one whom Jesus loves. And that is true. That is true. We should all say that. I am the one whom Jesus loves. But he describes himself that way. Said to Peter, it's bro, it's the Lord. I don't know if he said bro, but I think he maybe said bro. Or bruh, bruh, maybe. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The last time Peter, well, I won't say the last time, because I'm not totally sure right now, because I just, there was a time that Peter was on the Sea of Galilee around Jesus, and a big storm came. Remember the story? And what did Peter do on that day? Bro walked on the water. So maybe he's like, I'm going to put my outer garment on, and I'm going to run across the water to Jesus. And then I go, wait, why didn't he, why didn't he have his outer garment off? Well, he was a fisherman. It was hot. He may have been in the water. I was talking to Greg Hook about this, and he was like, yeah, I mean, there's like this fishing technique, and uh, I didn't totally, I wasn't totally following what Greg was saying, but like you have to get in the water and like cinch the net, so maybe he was in the water. Greg, are you here? I'm going I'm to blow this up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hi. I see you, bro. I see you. You can correct me next week. Greg's preaching next week. Anyway, all that to say, he didn't have his outer garment on. And he wasn't about to like jump in the water and go to his rabbi without his outer garment on. So he's like, <laughs> jumps in the water, didn't walk on water this time, <laughs> swimming out. That's what's happening. Have you ever been in a situation, by the way, when people start jumping in water with their clothes on? Anyone? Has anyone ever in a spontaneous way just jumped in water? When you do that, are you laughing? Is there joy and laughter? Is it childlike? Oh, totally, totally. If you haven't done that before and you're at a pool party and you're an adult in the room, just do it so that you can say, I've jumped in a pool of water with my clothes on and you will laugh and you will have joy and you will feel like a kid again. And some of us need to feel like kids again. Would you agree? Come on. I'm preaching up here. (laughs) So he's in the water Then the other disciples followed, this is John writing this. Then the other disciples followed in the boat, and we were towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. Peter's acting a fool, jumping in the water, and we are being responsible to get the fish to the shore. And John wants us to make sure that we know that. So you know that John is helping bring the fish in. You didn't think that was funny. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, courtesy laugh. And when they landed, when they landed, they saw a fire 
of burning coals or a charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So pause here. They come out of the water. They have the fish. Already on the shore is Jesus and what? There's a fire going and what else? Fish already there. They hadn't brought the fish from what they caught yet. Jesus was there with his own fish and some bread. To which I go, church potluck. (laughs) That's funny. And we have been having church potlucks ever since. I got some fish. I'm preparing some fish. You bring your fish. Let's have some breakfast. Thank you, Brennan. I grew up in a small town, Little Methodist Church, and I'm just telling y'all, we had some potlucks. We got some room to grow at Two Rivers with some potlucks. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. Yes, because he didn't help get the net from the lake to the shore. So Simon Peter, he's finally doing some work. It was, a, it was full of large fish. What's the, what's the number? 153, Bible trivia. Remember this, one Bible trivia. John literally specifies the number of fish that they caught. 153 fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn Now, let's talk about 153 for a second. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that professional fishermen in the Roman Empire would count their fish because they were taxed on it. But I'm reading this story and I notice that it's such a very specific number and it caused me to Google a little bit. So if you want to get on some rabbit trails later, just Google Jesus Galilee 153. Here's some interesting things that I found. 153 is a mathematical number. It is an equilateral triangle. So if you will visualize a triangle, one, the number one at the very top, and then right under one is two, three, and then third line is four, five, six. Are y'all with me right now? and you go 17 layers down from the top, the bottom right number, guess what that number is? 153, perfect triangle. (laughs) Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I don't know. I don't know. I, I also learned that 153 is a cyber definition. So I'm not young, I'm 50. But the young people have like numbers and acronyms. It's things like LOL, or you could say LOL. You know, but y'all, I mean, even the old people know what LOL is, right? Like laugh out loud. If you didn't, laugh out loud. 153 in a cyber definition means I adore you. I read, I read, uh, no, we were talking about this in our leadership team meeting. And Christine, she starts, I mean, she starts Googling. 
You can Google later. And she found an article. It was like, you know, like Hebrew, there's no numbers in Hebrew. There's only letters. So in the ancient Hebrew language, every letter has a number attached to it. And 153 in Hebrew can go to Ani Elohim. Ani, A-N-I, Elohim, which means I am God. That sounds cool, right? But then I did a little bit more study and after that, Christine, and I read this like Hebrew scholar and he was like totally rebuking that whole thing because he's like nowhere in the text does God self-identify with I, Ani Elohim, it's other things. But I, st- I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> so I don't know, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but so we don't really know. All that to say, we're having a little fun here. We don't really know. I spent a, I spent a significant amount of time this week looking up 153. <laughs> Super fun. Here's what we know. John is specific to 153, and he counted them, and he describes it as so many, to which I wrote, something extraordinary had happened because something extraordinary, someone extraordinary was there to the degree that John was like, I can't believe that the net didn't break. It was more fish than they probably had ever maybe perhaps caught before. I love the simplicity of the scene. Breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I think there are some important relational and discipleship lessons for us to learn in this very simple scene. Jesus' invitation is personal. He calls them friends. Friendship is developed as we share life together, life on life. When we do things together, we share things together, like having a breakfast meal on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I, I'm, I'm not sure why this is, but I think you would agree with me. I don't think I need to convince you of this. When we share just the simplicity, but I, I would also say the sacredness of sharing a meal with someone, we get to know each other in a much deeper way. Would you agree? There's something that happens over the sharing of a meal that just connects us in fellowship in a, in a deeper way. And so I just would say, gosh, let's have meals together. Invite people to breakfast. Hey, I got some eggs, but eggs are expensive. Could you maybe bring your own eggs? And I'll cook them and we'll eat them together. And I got some bacon, maybe you bring some bread, and let's just enjoy a fellowship meal together. It really can be as simple, as simple as that. As simple as that. Well, the next scene is after breakfast is Jesus comes to Peter directly. And again, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And we see something really specific with Peter and something really, really personal in Peter's life as we continue the next scene, and we'll close here for the morning. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Shepherds of sheep feed lambs. It's what a pastor is. It's what a shepherd does. Feed, care 
for the flock and the family of God. Jesus is reinstating Peter as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an apostle after his great failure on the night of Jesus' arrest. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Feed, feed my lambs. Feed my little ones. Feed my little ones. Shepherd the little ones. Second, take care of my sheep. The older ones, too. They need care. They need your shepherding. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went to where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. There's a cost to being a shepherd. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, and then he said to him, follow me. At Jesus' most urgent hour, Good Friday, at his most urgent hour, Peter does what three times? Denies Jesus. First, Jesus comes to Peter in his failure as a fisherman, initiates, engages, blesses, communes, fellowship. Now he is initiating with Peter in his failure as a disciple. And so he invites Peter three, three times to reaffirm his love. Restores him, redeems him. Ronil, my friend, shared a resurrection story a couple of weeks ago, and he used the phrase, Jesus is the hound of heaven. The phrase was popularized by C.S. Lewis in describing his own resurrection story. But that phrase, Jesus is the hound of heaven, is originated by an English poet named Francis Thompson in 1890. It's a poem of God's pursuit of those who have run away from him. God is a pursuer of runaways and deserters. Thompson describes in the poem a God who pursues us with, quote, deliberate speed as we look for our fulfillment in the things of this world. If you go look up the poem later, it's easily found on the internet, you will see Thompson say this in the opening lines of the poem, I fled him, I fled him, I fled him, I hid from him. And ultimately, the deserter, the runaway, is run down. He is pursued by the divine power and the pursuer that bids him come home, declaring, I am he who thou seekest. I read the poem this week, and it just reminded me of this verse, Luke 15, 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Do you know what this verse is from? What parable is this from? 
the prodigal son. Tim Keller passed away this past week, pastor, author, huge influence uh, in my generation. He wrote a book called Prodigal God, which shifted how I look at this parable because the word prodigal means extravagant. And he shifted, like the story really is about the extravagant grace and the mercy and the pursuit of God, even, even in our doubt, even in our fear, even in our failure, even in our disappointment, even in our brokenness. It's the extravagance of God. You may have heard people say in their stories that you have heard, you may have heard this said before, I found God. But that's not really the narrative in the Bible. We don't find God. God finds us. God comes looking for us. God isn't hiding. We are hiding. God is the one searching, coming, pursuing, and inviting you back home by his grace and his mercy. And some of you need that comfort today because you, because you have been running and hiding. Some of you need that comfort today because you love someone who has been running and hiding. There's something really specific in this story that gives me great comfort. And I wanna point it out to you, and we'll close here. When I read through this passage in verse nine, the NIV says fire, that Jesus had already built a fire for the disciples as they came out of the lake. But the full translation is a charcoal fire. And if you have the ESV or the NASV, it says charcoal fire in John 21, 9. There are two places in the New Testament that speak directly to a charcoal fire. One, of course, is in our passage today. The other is in John 18, 18. It was in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And John is inviting Peter into that place. And Peter was warming himself by the charcoal fire. And if you ever stand around a charcoal fire, what do your clothes smell like? A charcoal fire. There was a a girl that was there in the courtyard that night, John 18, and she looked at Peter and she said, you are one of them, you are with him. And it was Peter's first denial of Jesus. So Jesus, in his grace, his mercy, and his kindness, brings Peter back to the same experience of his greatest failure, a charcoal fire. And he restores his ministry there, and he redeems his ministry there at a charcoal fire. What did the fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee smell like? The same smell as the charcoal fire at the high priest's house. Of all the five senses, do you know which is the strongest 
neurologically and arousing a memory? Smell. Peter, for the rest of his life, when he smelled a charcoal fire, he would have thought immediately to the courtyard where he denied Jesus. But now, for the rest of his life, when he smells a charcoal fire, it will not arouse his shame, his guilt, his denial. It will arouse his worship, his joy, and his gratitude. And he will say, grace holds that ground now. Grace goes all the way, even to our neurological senses. That's how far the pursuit of God will go. And my hope is that for the rest of your life, when you have the privilege and joy of being around a campfire at Horsetooth, Pooter, Big T, wherever you are, camping, Nebraska, wherever it is. And the next day you smell your clothing and it smells like fire that you will never forget this story and that you will think of the grace of God in your life and in my life. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever.